Hey friends, I'm Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. I'm the host of the new podcast, Commotion. If you don't know about us yet, well, we are your daily deep dive into the biggest stories coming out of the world of pop culture, art, and entertainment. And luckily, I'm not going to be doing it alone, okay? I'll be joined by some brilliant culture writers and thoughtful super fans. We're going to have hilarious hot takes. We're going to have vibrant debates. Consider this your invitation to join the group chat. Get in here and join us. Commotion, available weekdays on CBC Listen. This is a CBC Podcast. It has been almost 13 years since the Tunisian street vendor Mohamed Bouaziz lit himself on fire, an extreme act of defiance that sparked what became known as the Arab Spring. That uprising had several significant young revolutionaries. One of them was Amina Araf, an American-Syrian blogger. Montrealer Sandra Bagaria was one of many around the world who was smitten. We were kind of like, oh, wow, who is that girl? Like, she was a brunette with strong, dark eyes. She had Middle Eastern roots, the perfect English writing. She could express herself very well. So for me, it was really appealing that she had that openness about who she was and at the same time not being afraid of like sharing uh, the fact that she was from Syria and gay. Amina's blog was called Gay Girl in Damascus, and her posts became more controversial. And as they did, some of her followers began to ask questions. Then one day... Amina disappeared. The journalist Samira Moyadin explores the story in her new podcast, Gay Girl Gone. Samira is also a former producer here at The Current, and she's with me in studio. Samira, good morning. Hi, good morning, Matt. How did you first hear about Amina? Um, I first heard about Amina Araf uh, back in 2011, uh, when her blog, Gay Girl in Damascus, really blew up. Uh, I had a blog at the time, so I was engaging with a lot of blogs from the Middle East. Mm -hmm. At that time, when the Arab Spring was unfolding, what did blogs mean? It was a way to keep in touch with activists, yeah. uh, to find out what was happening on the ground, because in a lot of these countries, uh, journalists just weren't present. The authoritarian regimes were not allowing uh, journalists to come in and cover what was happening. And most of the journalism that was happening inside the country was usually being controlled by the regimes. And so at that time, you come across, I mean, you're reading a lot of different blogs, but you come across hers. Yes. And what stood out to you? Well, there were a lot of things. The fact that she was openly gay. Um, the fact that she sort of straddled these two worlds. She was half American, half Syrian. And really, the fact that she went back to her country to take part in this revolution was something that really meant a lot to me. And, and she was doing it sort of under her name, you know, and she had her photo on the blog. And that, again, was something that really stood out. In the first episode of this podcast, you talk a lot about the connection that you created with her and how... You saw a lot of yourself in her. Tell me about that. At the time, I mean, just, just before the Arab Spring happened, there was the Green Revolution in Iran. And this was a massive uprising. Iranians out in the streets uh, protesting what they said was uh, rigged presidential elections. And I'm talking hundreds of thousands of people. And the crackdown by the government was brutal. Um, and then when I saw a couple months later, this Arab Spring, this swell of people coming out, I thought, oh, they're going to do what we couldn't do, hmm. you know. Um, and I was really rooting for them. And at the time, it, I really wanted to go back to Iran in 2009 and take part in what was happening, or at least document what was happening. And I couldn't do that, obviously. And, you know, here she was, this openly gay uh, lesbian back in her own country doing what she felt she needed to do. And I just really looked up to her for being so brave. You call her your unicorn. 
Yeah. What does that mean? <laughs> I mean, unicorns are, you know, things that you want to exist, but in your heart, you kind of know they don't, mm. you know, but you would hinge a lot on that unicorn. And I did that. I did that with Amina. I really wanted her to succeed. And at the time, for queer Middle Easterners, we, in a lot of, a lot of times, we just feel unseen, mm. You know, and people say things like, oh, you can't be queer and Muslim, or you can't be this and that. So, you know, we all sort of live in these binaries, you know, where you can't sort of straddle two identities. You can't do this. And she was straddling all of these things, right? She was queer. She was Middle Eastern. She was Syrian and American. So she had all of these identities, and she was navigating them really beautifully, you know, and that, that's quite rare. So she was a unicorn in that way. That was your connection to her. I mentioned this Montrealer, Sandra Bagaria, had a, had a deeper connection or a different connection to Amina. What did she mean to Sandra? I mean, Sandra fell in love with Amina. Uh, Sandra and Amina had a beautiful love affair online. And to her, she meant a connection to Syria also. Sandra's uh, grandmother was born in Aleppo. Um, and here she was in Montreal finding a connection with someone to a country that she sort of longed for also, but never got the chance to, to go to. The Arab Spring seems like it's far in the rearview mirror, right? It was a long time ago. And people, you think of the hopes that were wrapped up in that moment, but they seem off in the distance. If you go back and you read some of the things that, that Amina was writing about that time, what stands out to you about what it was that she was capturing about the moment? It, it really was, as you said, a moment of hope and change because Syria was, I think, the fourth country that sort of had this rupture happen. And, you know, it started in Tunisia, then went to, I think it was Libya, then Egypt. And it was just, you know, everybody was like, oh, my God, who's next? Yeah. Like, who's going to fall? What's going to happen? Exactly. And she was documenting it in a different way. It wasn't just pure activism. She was really, it was like personal essays happening, you know, but they were entwined with bits of history of Syria that maybe you didn't know. And again, writing very intimately about her love affair, you know, um, with another person and, and finding this love and wanting to realize that love in a way that wasn't possible during the revolution, you know. And she was writing about it very familiarly. So it was something that you can understand. It wasn't a lot of academic jargon mm. coming from an activist or stuff like that. It was very intimate. For a lot of us who are covering this from the other side of the world, we were looking for ways into this conversation. We were looking for somebody who could tell you what it's really like on the ground. And Maybe that's why her blog started to get noticed by people in Western media. And there was one post in particular that really got a lot of attention. Tell us about My Father the Hero. This was a post that really sort of catapulted the blog. Um, Amina lived with her father, and they got a, um, a knock on the door late at night, and it was the secret police, Assad's secret police, and they had come to take Amina. And in this back and forth that the father was having with the secret police, he says, you know, I love my daughter regardless of her sexuality because the police said, do you know she's gay? You know, and, and that's illegal in Syria. Absolutely. Yeah. You can go to prison. And he stood up for her in this way that was really heartening. You know, as queer people sort of reading this, we were like, wow, look at this dad, right? And I think I even mentioned, of course, my queer Syrian unicorn would have a unicorn father. Mm. And so 
it ends up that, you know, he sort of shames them into not taking her. And it was this big victory. That was the blog post that really catapulted Amina to the world stage. I mean, The Guardian picked it up. All of these sort of news outlets, they said, oh, we finally have a face and a voice of the Syrian revolution. The post sparked a strong reaction for a gay man who's living in Damascus, Danny Ramadan. Take a listen to this. Honestly, before that post, I felt that Amina is harmless. And after that post, she felt like she's harming me, like she's harming us. Because before the post, she was just a gay girl who's writing posts and people are celebrating her. But after that post, Oh, gosh, I was very angry. I was very angry because it was being taken seriously. What's going on there? You know, D- Danny got angered because to him, it's impossible that the secret police, when they're ordered to come and take someone, they don't. That blog post for a lot of people who were in Damascus started raising some questions mm. about who is this person and where is she? You know, because as as you heard him say, he was sort of reading this blog post and thought, oh, these are nice stories. But now she's putting our lives in danger. Were those those alarm bells going off, do you think, outside of... Not to me, they weren't. No. No. And I don't think they were for people who were outside of the country. Grab your VIP pass. We're delving into the secretive world of Formula One. Behind the scenes with two of the sport's biggest names, Mercedes and Williams. This is not coal mining, this is Formula One motor racing. As they build their new cars. We want to be so much further ahead. We're in permanent racing mode. And face shocking headlines. Here's Lewis Hamilton moving away from Mercedes. I'm Joseph Fiennes and this is F1, back at base. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. In Montreal, I mean, we mentioned Sandra, who's been reading this and, and, and has developed uh, a relationship with Amina. She gets a message that she has been fearing since she met Amina. Have a listen. So I just like stood in the middle of that park and I, and I, I read that email and I started crying. Like I was really just in shock. But at the same time, I was like, OK, she got kidnapped. We knew one day it would have happened. So what do we do about it? What happened? So there was a blog post, and it wasn't from Amina. It was from her cousin, Rania, saying that we haven't heard from Amina. She was supposed to go to a meeting with other activists and that she was kidnapped off the streets of Damascus. And this sparked a massive uh, worldwide free Amina campaign. Do you remember reading that? I 100% I remember. But it was also something that I have to say many of us weren't surprised by, right? Because you were reading in the news that activists were being disappeared, right? All over Damascus. So we thought, okay, now they've taken her, right? And it made sense because she was so loud and, you know, using her name on the blog that like we were just all mobilized, you know, um, and hashtag free Amina was everywhere. What did Sandra do to try to help free Amina? What she did was she went and contacted all of the journalists that had interviewed Amina and told them what had happened and who Rania was, how they can get in touch with Rania, et cetera, and all this stuff, and has conversations with the State Department. Because you have to understand, because Amina was Syrian-American, you now had a potential sort of two governments Mm -hmm. coming together, right? And the U.S. State Department um, gets involved because a citizen of theirs has potentially been kidnapped. 
It's also playing out in Syria. We heard earlier from from Danny Ramadan, who is a gay man who is living in Damascus. He wanted to try to help. Despite his concerns, despite his suspicions, he wanted to try to help her. What happened when he started poking around and asking his contacts about Amina? So he started poking around and started poking around at really the upper echelons of uh, Syrian security services. and Saying, what's going on here? Where did she go? Yeah, then it starts to get a little weirder. And that's where the podcast sort of just starts going on about, like, who really is Amina Araf? One of the things that he did was, Danny did, is is he, we talked about international journalists, Western journalists paying attention to her blog. Um, one of the people who was paying attention was a journalist from NPR, Andy Carvin. Danny contacts Andy to find out more about what he knew. Danny certainly got my attention because he made it clear that he was highly skeptical about her identity. He couldn't find anyone who knew who she was, and he seemed very anxious that something strange was going on here. To see a Syrian LGBT activist reach out to me privately and express very grave concerns about her identity while I was simultaneously struggling to find anyone who had ever met her in person, made me truly wonder what was going on here. Samira, what was going on here? This is a story about somebody who may not have been who they said they were. Exactly. And the thing is that Danny reached out to Andy Carvin on Twitter because Andy Carvin asks on Twitter, does anyone know Amina? I mean, you have to understand, during the Arab Spring, he had somewhere around 100,000 followers. So he really found himself becoming the voice of the Arab Spring on Twitter. And Danny reaches out and he says, there's something fishy going on here because this is what I found out, right? Um, And Andy Carvin at the time was really the person who was navigating social media for NPR. At the time, legacy media wasn't really engaging with social media in the way that we see today. And this is before Twitter became kind of... You know, people call it the hell site. Um, you use, it was used to connect with people on the other side of the world. Yeah, and it was used in a way, particularly during the Arab Spring, to keep abreast of what was happening on the ground um, in a way that other journalists weren't able to. Yeah. And so that sort of becomes a real part of this podcast, too, is the role of journalism, the role of social media. Uh, uh, and so Andy starts poking around also and becomes part of the investigative team to find out who Amina Araf is and where is she. When did you start to think, I wonder what's going on here? When did you start to, that, that, you know, the radar, you have a very good, well-tuned radar. When did that go up and you start to pick up some signals that perhaps everything was not as it seemed? You know, it, it, because I wasn't sort of, I didn't know who Danny Ramadan was at the time. Um, and I wasn't on Twitter at the time. So I was really just focused on the blog and then looking to places like The Guardian to see, oh, what are they writing? I didn't even know Andy Carvin at the time. Mm-hmm. I didn't get a lot of spidey senses until much later on. I was really in the dark. I, I was part of that Free Amina campaign. And so it really wasn't until later on that I thought, oh, what's going on here. And as that was unfolding, what's going through your mind? A lot of disappointment. A lot of disappointment. Yeah, it was it was heartbreaking to find out the things that we find out. Heartbreaking. Yeah. Why do you use that word in particular? Because we really wanted for Syrians to get to where they wanted to get to and then also to be seen and heard in a way that we weren't seen and heard. And by, by, by we, I mean queer Middle Easterners. 
I mean, I hope people listen to to this whole podcast, but one of the questions that will be dangling in the minds of listeners right now is, did you find out who this person really was? We do. We do. And, and again, that is another reason why I use the word heartbreaking. What is this story really about, do you think? I mean, for me, it's about what voices get picked up and what voices get drowned out. Yes, there it is about love and revolution, but my biggest takeaway when I was investigating this is really understanding who gets heard and who doesn't. Did you come out of this with a sense as to why the story unfolded in the way that it did? Yes, absolutely. One of the characters who I think is a really integral voice is is a gentleman who looked at this um, entire story and wrote a book about it Mm. called The Gay Girl in Damascus and really sort of pinpointed why the story unfolded the way it did and how, and I'll use the word complicit here. I was going to say, yeah. Yeah, how complicit Western journalists were in what what unfolded. Because there was a story that we, we in the West wanted to believe? 100%. And I have to say also, I, I don't put myself outside of that complicity. I was putting my own identity on on something that I wanted to be real. What I want people to be thinking about is our role in what happens in other parts of the world. And by our, I mean, I mean Western, the Western gaze on other areas of the world and what our prejudices are and, and these sort of imaginations that we have of other parts of the world. It's a really incredible story. Um, and you tell it really, really well. I hope people listen to this. Samira, thank you. Thank you so much. Samira Moyadin's new CBC podcast is Gay Girl Gone. You can find it on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.